Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm Gary Bain, and once more, I'm here on Zoom with the delectable Peter Hart, as uh, COVID has once more visited and blessed the House of Hart. Yeah, little Ruby is on a bed of pain. She says she's got no symptoms, but never mind. There you go. Yeah, so we're, so we're back on Zoom. Uh, and today, Pete, we're going to continue with that um, not forgotten, we didn't forget. No. We just no. rescheduled we series uh, on the uh, second Royal Norfolks. And today, it's the uh, Battle of Kahima. It's not the battle. It's, it's probably leading into the battle, to be fair. Yeah. We've got four in all on it, so there's the, the, the two leading up to it, and then uh, the two, that which will be in a couple of weeks' time, of, of the denouement, Gary, the denouement of the Battle of Is that Kahima. one of them French forts? <laughs> yes, it's just outside Vaux. Yeah, that's it. Right, so where did we leave them? Um, well, we had the second Royal Norfolks. Uh, they were going to be a part of an ambitious outflanking manoeuvre to circle round behind the Japanese southern flank which was through appalling, I mean, appalling forested hill country to relieve the trapped British garrison of Kohima. Now, this ambitious attempt, it was given a, uh, as these things were, a code name, and this one was called Operation Strident. Sounds perfect for us, mm. <laughs> Strident. <laughs> now, as their concentration area was under distant Japanese observation, the uh, Royal Norfolk Regiment set off on the march at about five o'clock in the evening of the 25th of April, just as it was starting to get dark. And uh, you're going to be, you're going to work very hard today, Pete. You're going to be Captain John Howard, who was the intelligence officer of the HQ 4th Brigade. And what do you say, Captain John? The path went up a steep valley between wooden slopes, wooded, not wooden, wooded slopes, and climbed steadily, sometimes through trees and sometimes among paddy fields. Often it became indistinguishable from field paths, which led only to other areas of cultivation. Ooh. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to say the first stage, although through a cultivated area, it still posed difficulties for the troops. And now... And uh, I want to see the the difference in the in the way you present your speech here. You're going to be Private Bert May of HQ Company, Second Norfolk's. 
Very nasty. Some of the time we were walking across paddy fields, not across the actual field itself, but around its outskirts. They were built up like a ridge and it stank. Have you ever smelled dead earth? It was horrible. Was he related to Bob Scott at all? No, that was my Norfolk accent. Oh, was it? Oh, right, okay. Hmm. <laughs> now, gradually, they climbed up into the hills. With all the usual problems of marching through rough country with little or no light, smoking was forbidden, and every effort was taken to keep noise to a minimum. Now, I'm Ooh. going to now be Sergeant Fred Hazel of D Company, 2nd Norfolk's. God, what a night that was. What a climb. What a climb. Very steep. Wooded, a lot of undergrowth. There was a lot of pass, but occasionally we had to cut our way through. I stopped on a moist tree root, lost my footing and fell flat on my back. My legs went in the air and I unfortunately caught the chap in front on both his legs, just above his knees. And he was the biggest chap in the battalion. He came down on my stomach and God, he knocked every ounce of wind out of me. You couldn't hang about because it was pitch blooming dark, and if you lost the chap in front, you could end up anywhere. Now they were marching up, and then where they were headed to first was a village called Kahonoma, uh, which uh, which at that now you you Gary with your encyclopedic knowledge of British military history will will recognise that because in 1879 probably. <laughs> <laughs> Never trust my dates. Uh, that was where Lieutenant Ridgeway, the 43rd Bengal Light Infantry, a fine, bo a fine body of men, had won a posthumous VC fighting against the Nagas. Uh, now, the Nagas were the local village. We mentioned them in the last podcast. Uh, and they're soon going to... <laughs> they're now on our side, which is just as well, because they're bloody indispensable in the, in the next few days. And once again, you're going to be Sergeant Fred Hazel of D Company. We finally arrived at this blessed village at about 2 o'clock in the morning. Somebody from headquarters came up and said, put your platoon in there. This was quite a big hut. We went in, pitch dark. I sat down on my backside, took my pack off and decided I was going to carry this evaporated milk. Not another inch. I drank four cans of it before I fell asleep. Long before I'd finished, the whole platoon was snoring its head off. I fell asleep myself. I woke up. The sun was shining through the chinks in the walls of the hut. And I thought to myself, God's truth. I never posted a sentry. I opened the door and there was a big naga standing outside, on guard, with his spear. He looked round and he beamed at me. I patted him on the head. Then somebody appeared and said, Have your breakfast. We're moving off at ten. Breakfast? It was three biscuits and a brew-up. That's a nice breakfast, and for the larger gentlemen, that's probably what they should be eating. Now, uh, the column moved uh, off. They, they mainly went during the day because by this time they, they, they were shielded from prying eyes by uh, the, uh, the the jungle the ravines and ridges uh, that, that surrounded them uh, as they they move round towards Kohima and again you're going to be Fred Hazel he's lovely that Fred Hazel yeah I thought you were doing all the work today I've got it wrong yeah <laughs> I didn't point that out no. so I'm going to be Fred Hazel we moved off. I don't know quite how much we covered in the course of a day. Sometimes we only sort of scrambled down one ridge and scrambled up the next one. Some days we did a bit more. It was one long straight line of men on the move, six foot apart, a massive great chain about a quarter of a mile long. 
Now, in front of them uh, are the men of the 143rd Special Service Company. We we haven't really featured these much. But second, I'm going to be Second Lieutenant Dickie Davis. He's D Company. And uh, he says this. McGeorge was commanding, i.e. the 143 uh, Special Service Company, and they were trained to go in front of the battalion and do a reconnaissance as we went round. Because we were on single tracks and we'd have been absolutely massacred, so he spread out and went round in front, rather like a broom going in front. He's repeating himself there a bit. Ooh. Now, the Naga villages, uh, they, the, the villagers, they, they, they formed carrying parties and they went with them. And they're, they're good old British. They carried much of the heavier uh, equipment and, uh, and packed the, the heavy things. Because the Norfolk's were struggling a bit. And uh, you're going to be Fred Hazel again. He's definitely struggling. About the second night, we were still doing a bit in the dark. I was conscious that there was another column moving along sort of 10 foot away from me, but in the same direction. In the dark, I peered across there, and it was Nagas, two or three hundred, I should think. Men, women, young lads, and even young girls carrying ammunition and water. There were young girls with a box of ammunition on their head, tripping along quite gaily. We were staggering along underneath our packs. I like that. That's a, it's a great. Uh, they were really impressed by these Naga porters. Uh, they, they thought they'd got sort of superhuman strength, stamina, and they were just, of course, it's because people are used to what they're used to, but you're gonna, you're now going to switch to being Sergeant Ben McRae of the carrier platoon. And he's not carrying, is he? <laughs> oh, he's carrying enough for him. They gripped it as they carried the thing. They had a sort of rhythm to them. Grum, brum, grum, brum, all the way up the hills. Fully enough. That stopped you getting out of breath. It was their expression of expelling their lungs. They'd been doing it for donkey's years. For us, it was something new carrying all that weight. They'd go on forever and ever. They didn't like us stopping. They couldn't understand us stopping for ten minutes every hour. We were on our chin straps. Now, as they go up, unsurprisingly, it gets worse. By the way, that seemed to be Cornish, but I'm, I'm no, not that, 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 Norfolk. <laughs> Norfolk Cornish. <laughs> <laughs> as they go higher of course the it get well of course but it does it gets worse and worse um um that the, the, these are this isn't some sort of geography field trip or rambling thing they're, they're they're going on a route just drawn on a map by a general basically and i'm going to be lieutenant sam horner of headquarters company we were moving across the country, not with it. The result being that we had to climb up one after another of these ridges and slide down the other side, and it was very, very exhausting. We were almost in single file, not quite perhaps, but a lot of, of the way through had to be cut, and we had to have somebody ahead. We had these machetes, and we cut our way to some extent. We even used ropes sometimes to get up very steep hills, which were so slippery with the wet that you went forward one pace and back half a pace. It was very exhausting and very difficult, but with Anaga's help we made it. But it was slow. Secrecy was very important. We didn't want the Japs to know we were coming in there behind the lines. But there weren't any lines, if you know what I mean. We were well away from the actual battle going on in Kohima. Because they're going right round, aren't they? Roundy round. Yeah, now it's obvious that secrecy was paramount. But the medical officer, Captain John Mather, illustrated why doctors and weapons were an unfortunate combination. And I'm going to be Captain John Mather of HQ Company. I had a revolver. Uh, but I'd no holster for it. I don't know why they didn't give me one, but I hadn't got one. It was sort of hanging loose on a cord. We were resting for a bit, and suddenly there was a bang. 
I looked at my pistol and it was smoking. I had obviously fired it when I was sort of dozing and my hand was on it because it hadn't a cover. The sergeant came marching down because we were supposed to be silent. My batman said, That was a stand, sergeant. He said, oh, I know it was. He said, Well, it was down there. I never said a word. I got away with it. But I was lucky. I might have hit somebody or my own foot. Then I would have looked a bloody fool, wouldn't I? You do look a bloody fool. <laughs> now, at intervals, the rain poured down on the heaving, heaving column. And uh, one of our favourites, Private Dick Fidderman, says this. And you're going to be Dick. <laughs> That's my joke from the previous week. I'm told that that part of the world has the heaviest rainfall <laughs> I, I would never dispute that. It comes down in an absolute solid sheet. You think to yourself, if he doesn't stop soon beating against my poor skull, I'll go insane. <laughs> the whole area becomes a quagmire. Combined with the rain, you've got the humidity and you're sweating. The straps of your pack, your rifle sting, and anything else you're carrying tends to chief and rub. <laughs> Your skin becomes sore, all tender and raw. Your feet, however tough and hardened, are saturated and become sore with constant rubbing, however well your boots are fed. Now, wow. at this point, dear listeners, I would like to apologise to the whole of Norfolk. That, uh, that was appalling. <laughs> now, after three days... Bugger, bugger Norfolk. After three days, the column rested up in what was enticingly known as Death Valley. Dun, dun, dun. And uh, once more, you're going to be Captain John Howard, the intelligence officer. What what does he say, Pete? I've, I don't know. I can't remember his accent. Oh. He was slightly <laughs> I never get them right anyway. Death Valley. <laughs> Death, Death Valley, as it was called, uh, though no one died there, was a miserable place filled with huge trees covered in dripping moss. Sunlight rarely penetrated, and rain was almost continuous. We lived on light, half-scale rations for the three days. Light-scale rations consisted of milk, tea, sugar, bully beef, and weevily biscuits. <laughs> yum, yum. Weevily biscuits are then rock-hard uh, things, aren't they, weevily biscuits? Yeah, but apparently they've got soft bits inside them by this time. The men, they... they they didn't sort of appreciate the fare that was being provided, did they, Pete? And uh, Sergeant Fred Hazel goes on to say this. The biscuits were about four inch square and half an inch thick. You would have thought it was mild steel plate that you were trying to get your teeth into. You had to break them with the end of your bayonet. Now, as for the bully beef, Sergeant McRae, he'd, he'd just had enough. And he said this. I never liked it in the first place. I abhor it. Oh, it was something I endured. It's something that will go on my tombstone. He didn't like corned beef. Have you noticed that <laughs> that we both think each other's accents are appalling? I have noticed that. Oh well. Yeah. Uh, the troops every you know when they have a stop, uh, not just the ten minutes every hour, but a proper stop. Uh, they they they're really pleased to have a rest. But there's a there's a bit of a problem. What is the problem you tend to find in jungly areas? Well, they're not really impressed by the surroundings or or their little friends who I think you're referring to who welcomed them with open jaws. And you're going to be oh, and and I'm looking forward to this one again. You're going to be again, Private Bert May of HQ Company. 
It was a stinging hell of a hole. All the vegetation on the ground was dead. It stagged to high heaven. I think that was why I got that name. Uh, why it got that name, Dead Valley, he means. Not because there were any bodies lying around. Gone Australian there, I noticed. <laughs> but the actual stench of the place itself. Leeches. They used to get through onto any part of the body that was open. We fried. We tried. We fried. We t- we we fried. No, we tried to keep around the bottom of their trousers, around your sleeves and everything closed as much as you could. If you got leeches on us, we never pulled them off because the head stayed in the flesh and that made a very nasty ulcer. So we used to get a lighted cigarette, stick it on his tail and boom! He used to pop off. You'd see blood. Uh, him would still be coming out. Now, that's pretty imprudent. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, we might... Sorry, Norfolk. I think we might ask our listeners to vote for the uh, the worst accents and uh, give a prize, perhaps one of your books, as it's a worst accent. <laughs> All right, I'll give a copy of At Close Range to the person who, gets, who, who says that you're the worst accent. No. Let's see uh, <laughs> who suggests. Uh, all right, the most am- the most amusing suggestion on uh, Twitter. Yes, all right, we'll, we'll as get to one w- of your books. Which out are- uh, yeah, now, we will. It's under these uh, unpropitious circumstances. Unpropitious. I'm not sure how you say that. Unpropitious circumstances that Lieutenant Sam Horner. This not good. That those not good circumstances. He celebrated his twenty first. He's only twenty one. Twenty first birthday. And once more... He's got the key to the door, never been 21 before. And in some cases, there's a risk he might not ever be it again. Well, he would never be it again, True. thinking about it. You're never 21 twice. He was. No, no, you're not, Gary. <laughs> and you're going to... <laughs> oh, Janet was. You're going to be Lieutenant Sam Horner of HQ Company. Some of my chaps, almost to my embarrassment, thought that I ought to have a, a birthday breakfast. So I had a very good breakfast of two biscuits mashed up in my mess tent. Somebody got me some brandy in a flask, tipped some in. Somebody got some sugar. There was powdered milk. That went in. It was all mashed up and it brewed up a bit over a little fire. The only way to light a fire was to burn the rupee notes we carried in our pockets. <laughs> they were dry. So they fed me like that. That sounds appalling. Not just me. I mean, the the, the meal. I, th- ah. I thought you meant the burning of money. I know how you feel That's about that. That's bad as well. I do like yeah. it. Now, they all knew that they were marching into danger. But uh, as was so often the case, they were pretty confident of their own survival. Captain John Howard and the mortar platoon commander, Lieutenant David Glass, chatted together about their prospects. And you're going to be Captain John Howard. We were not much worried. We were, we were excited, and although we realised that uh, all would not survive this battle, we had no knowledge of the realities of war and felt little sadness in the prospect. I wondered what my reaction would be and how the loss of friends would strike me. Now, while the 4th Brigade rested, they received orders to change their target from Aradura Spur to GPT Ridge. As Intelligence Officer John Howard was well-placed to summarise the reasoning which lay behind this late-changing plan. And once... Changing plan. And once more, you're going to be catching... Is English your first language? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Here we also we also received an order from divisional headquarters that instead of going behind the Japs onto the unoccupied Aradura Spur, we were to attack the flank of his known position on GPT Ridge, coming down on him from above. 
This entailed marching another two or three miles, called, into the country, which he probably patrolled. It would be more difficult to achieve surprise in doing this than it would have been to establish ourselves on the Aradura and await his counterattack, which we knew he could defeat. Against moving to Aradura was the uncertainty of the Jap reaction. It might not force him out of his positions close to Kahima. The 5th Brigades moved north of Kahima to the Marima track and attained its objectives, but did not force the Jap out, and the result was a stalemate in the Naga village of Kahima, just as it was on Garrison Hill. On Aradura Ridge, we should have had no lines of communication except our tortuous track through Kahumana until GPT Ridge and Jail Hill were cleared. Our attack on GPT Ridge, however, would penetrate into the heart of the Jap positions, dominating Garrison Hill, and we should then fairly easily make troop without, uh, contact with our troops in the Jotsama and Punjab Ridge area. I didn't understand any of that, really. <coughs> These, I think, must have been the factors which caused General Grover to direct us to GPT Ridge instead of Aradura. Whether he's right or not is impossible to tell. So basically... They've, they've, they've made, a choice has been made, and there's problems with both choices. Uh, but that, there often is in the military world, which is why it's so frustrating that people spend half their time arguing whether someone's right or wrong, when both might be right and both might be wrong. Oh, some of them can be right and wrong at the same time. Yeah, a bit like you reading that, really. I think um, I think it's fair to say that Konoma is uh, pronounced Konoma. So that's, uh, for the listener, K-H-O-N-O-N-A. Just in case your pronunciation, um, <laughs> wasn't understood. One concern to Grover, now he was the commander, wasn't he, Grover? Was the divisional commander, second division? Was the slow rate of progress. Uh, but the men couldn't possibly go any faster in the conditions. The whole distance they had to march from the road to GPT Ridge was only around seven miles on the map. But in the Assam jungle, miles had little or no value as a unit of human measurement. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, yeah, only seven miles, but... A hard seven miles. And uh, you are now working very hard. You are once more going to be Lieutenant Sam Horner of HQ Company. 
The physical hammering one takes is difficult to understand. The heat, the humidity, the altitude, and the slope of almost every foot of ground combine to knock hell out of the stoutest constitution. You gasp for air which doesn't seem to come. You drag your legs upward till they seem reduced to the strength of matchsticks. You wipe the salt sweat out of your eyes. Then you feel your heart pounding so violently you think it must burst its cage. It sounds as loud as a drum, even above the swearing and cursing going on around you. Soldiers never complain, but they do swear and curse. So you stop, horrified to be prodded by the man behind or cursed by an officer in front. Eventually, long after everything tells you you should have died of heart failure, you reach what you imagined is the top of the hill, only to find it is a false crest and the path still lies upward. And when you finally get to the top, there's a hellish climb down. You forget the Japs. You forget time. You forget hunger and thirst. All you can think of is the next halt. Wow. The start of that was uh, very Rupert Brooke, wasn't it? The physical hammering one takes is difficult to understand. Yes, yeah. very Rupert Brooke. Now, in these circumstances, the column could only progress at its own speed. Well, yes. Uh, while the brigade rested in Death Valley, Major Condor took a small patrol selected from B Company up the mountain, which lay to the south. Now, what what were they what were they going up the mountain for, Pete? What were they what were they going to oh, do? Um, I think they're making sure that there are no Japanese patrols lurking, lurking, Gary, lurking, ready to fall on them like like sausages in the night on the right flank of the column. Yes, on the right. Yeah, on the right. Yeah. And right. I'm going to be, oh, one of our favourites, ah, Sergeant Bert of <clears throat> B Company, 2nd Norfolk's. Now, which of the three accents you've given this gentleman <laughs> are you going for today? We went out to the ice peak in the area, covering a village. My favourite. We were looking down onto it, and Major Condor went back to the battalion. I remained there all night with a standing patrol, where you cover a position observing what's going on. We were straddling a path which led up from the village, through to another village, most probably to the left of us. Round about midnight, there was movement on the track, and this chap came along. We didn't know who he was, and he came right close to where I was with my headquarters. I got him, put my hand over his mouth, held a knife into his back, and told him to keep quiet, which he did. The poor fellow was scared stiff. He must have thought we were going to kill him. He was a naga. But we didn't let him go because we didn't know whether we were going to tell the Japanese where we were or what we were doing. So I had to hold him all night. I took him into our headquarters where he couldn't be seen and told him if he kept quiet, he would not get hurt. Luckily enough, he could understand what we meant. He laid down and went to sleep. He didn't bother. The next morning, when it was daylight, we let the man go on his way because we were moving off from that position, so we didn't mind. I took my patrol back to rejoin my company. Now, uh, we're getting to the 1st of May now. Uh, there's another horrendous climb up these awful, steepy, steep you mean slopes. precipitous. Ooh. Have you been swallowing a dictionary again? Precipitous slopes, I think, is what you're looking for. Anyway, they got, they're so steep, they actually had the engineers cut steps and put rope lines for them uh, to, to sort of haul themselves up. And they dragged themselves up to the ridge, which lies above, above Aradura Ridge and GPT Ridge. Now, remember, as we were told before, they're going to go down onto GPT Ridge now. And I'm going to be Captain John Howard again, who's the intelligence officer with HQ Brigade, uh, HQ 4th Brigade. Yeah, he is an old Norfolk, of course, but uh, we're not 
putting that into the accent. By nightfall, we had scrambled about a mile to the north along the crest and were established on the wooded peaks above Aradura. The ridge top was a strange contrast to the valley. Sometimes the clouds were below us, and we were bathed in brilliant sunshine. At other times, the clouds were all around us. The view was nearly always restricted by clouds below, or clouds close about us. We looked down into the forest for a hundred feet on either side of us, and then the steeply falling hill was hidden in a swirling white blanket. Sudden showers of rain were frequent, but such waters fell ran swiftly away, as from a roof. We were able to look across to Garrison Hill and Naga Village, but it was too different, a, a too distant a view to be of much practical use. We saw Jail Hill and the immediate, uh, the extreme, sorry, I do apologise, and the extreme northeastern tip of GPT Ridge, our objective, but the rest of it, and all the approaches to it, were hidden and indistinguishable in the thick jungle. Wow. Ooh. Now, on the afternoon of the 2nd of May, they descended from the ridge into the upper reaches of the uh, Aradura Valley. They crossed it, and they climbed again to the spur above GPT Ridge. And I'm going to be once more Sergeant Fred Hazel of D Company. We settled down for the night. We were all feeling fairly relieved that A, the march had finished, and B, we got there without being discovered. We had the advantages of surprise on our side. So it was a bit of a bit of pill when it uh, when at about two o'clock in the morning all hell let loose behind us. It was only then that I was told that the Royal Scots were following the day behind us in reserve. Unfortunately, a Jack patrol had bumped into them. They'd seen the Nagas that had been carrying our baggage and followed them. Of course, the Nagas took the same route back as the Royal Scots were coming forward. So they passed each other and the Japs then walked straight into the Royal Scots who opened up on them with everything they'd got. We heard it. So the Japs heard it, and then they knew there was someone behind their lines. Now, at this point, there's a quite a lot of confusion because they think they're on a, a hill called Oaks Hill, and they report that to divisional headquarters, and they're completely baffled because they'd also had reports from other patrols that the Oaks Hill was in the hands of the Japanese. Uh, it, why do you think they made mistakes like this? We we did mention in the last podcast. What, what's going wrong? Well, it's, it's hardly surprising, is it? They're, they're navigating through extremely rough terrain, and, and they've got inadequate maps. I mean, we made a point of saying about the maps, I think. Yeah, well, a lot of it's just they're almost blank, aren't mm. they? Because uh, Yeah, because they had no visibility of it. They had, it had never, ever... Uh, been mapped. Now, 3rd of May, Brigadier William Goshen takes out a 22-man reconnaissance patrol, and he's going to try and find exactly where they are and to, uh, to just to get the information he needs to properly plan the assault which will be carried out on GPT Ridge on the 4th of May. Now, in that 22-man, eight of them were Norfolk's, because uh, their, their battalion were going to lead the attack. The Norfolk's going to lead the attack. And Captain John Howard, also a Norfolk, but the intelligence officer, uh, was also on the patrol. And I'm going to be him again. Uh, we could see absolutely bugger all. I suppose we were a couple of miles from the road, and immediately below one was heavy jungle. I knew it was clear down by the road, but they were all reverse convex slopes. What? And you couldn't see what was beyond the slope. It was too far away. I saw two chaps walking along the road, but even with binoculars, you couldn't tell whether they were soldiers, Japs or Nagas. They might have been anybody. What's a, what's a reverse convex slope, Pete? Can you explain it to me? Because that's like a convex slope, like that. And uh, what's a reverse convex slope? It's the other way around. Oh, right. Yeah, thanks, mate. Now, after much furtive searching, the brigadier managed to find a spot where he could just see the corrugated iron roof. He's easily satisfied. Of a building which was, it was thought, 
I am trying to work, which it was thought must be on the bottom end of GPT Ridge. Now, they took a compass bearing, and it was on this flimsy basis that Brigadier William Goshen made his plans. And again, you're working so hard. You're going to be Captain so John Howard. No one had seen the ground beyond the point of our reconnaissance, but we believed we were about 500 yards from the edge of the trees, and beyond that lay the barren northeast end of GPT Ridge. In fact, we were much higher up the hill, at some 1,200 yards from the edge of the jungle. About the enemy, we knew, we knew he had positions on the barren end of GPT Ridge, that he patrolled between there and us, that he had further positions on Jail Hill, and that the bridge at Milestone 47 was a hive of activity. We also knew of the Japs that had attacked the Royal Scots on the Japvo Pulsibadzi Ridge. It appeared that we still had the advantage of surprise, for the Jap gave no indication that he knew of our presence in strength on his flag. So they knew something was happening, but they didn't know what. Is that that that's uh, but the problem is the Japanese might not have known what was happening, but I'm not sure whether Brigadier Goshen knew what was happening either. No. What do you think? No, I don't know. And and what was the name of that ridge that the uh, Scots Guard were attacked on? The Royal ja- Japvo Pulpa uh, Japvo pulls up pulls bards. All <laughs> oh, right, okay. Now, <laughs> as you mentioned, it was extremely minimal information on which to base plans for an attack. Yet they've got to strike a balance between ignorance. Are you listening, Pete? Got to strike a, a balance between ignorance and more active patrolling, which may have elicited more information, but was likely to prejudice the surprise. And again, yeah, that's interesting. I've- I find that interesting. The more you patrol, the more likely the Japanese are going to think, what's going on up there? Or, or simply yeah, come, across I see the, that. come across some of those patrols. They could take prisoners, all sorts yeah. of things. Now, once more, you are working so hard today, Pete, and it's, and it's, you've got a sore, poorly throat as well. It must be very difficult. I haven't got a sore throat. You're going to be Captain John Howard, the intelligence officer, once more. A plan based on such uh, scanty information had of necessity to be fluid. Two platoons of the Special Service Company were placed under Robert Scott's command in order to patrol ahead of the Norfolks while they approached their start line, which was to be a 100 yards above the edge of the trees. During this approach, 99th Field Regiment and other regiments of guns were to register on the barren portion of GPT Ridge and to fire diversionary concentrations or to Jail Hill and the Ring Contour Hillock at the end of GPT on the opposite side of the road to Jail Hill. Now, we will definitely put a map of this because it's barely understandable without, isn't it? So what's this? What is this plan? It doesn't sound like much of a plan well, to me. In, in essence, uh, it, it's basically an advance to contact by the Norfolks. Always, and we've said this time and time again, always dangerous. When they reached the edge of the jungle on GPT Ridge, they were to inform divisional headquarters who would unleash the artillery barrage prior to the final assault on the lower ridge. What about the Royal Scots? What are they up to? Whilst this is happening, the Royal Scots would initially guard their rear and then act as brigade reserve to be used in uh, an exploitation attack on the hillock at the end of GPT Ridge. If and it's a big if, I think, that Norfolk succeeded. Now, unfortunately, the, these plans were disrupted before they'd even been given out. And uh, poor old Captain John Howard once more tells us the story. What do you say, Captain John? While the Brigadier was giving these orders, a patrol led by Roger Postock reported that there was a Japanese position between us and the proposed start line. 
Our faces fell. The brigadier questioned Rogers to whether he was certain that it was a defended locality and not just a patrol. Roger was quite certain. The brigadier scratched the back of his neck, chewed his straggly moustache and made up his mind quickly. His plan would not be altered in its main outline. If the Japanese were still there in the morning, the position which appeared to be isolated would be contained and bypassed. Mm, wow. Well, having been brief, Scott called his battalion O group together. And, uh, Uh-oh. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> Uh-oh. you're going to be Sam, <laughs> Lieutenant Sam Horner of HQ Company. The light was failing fast, so Scott said, Get your pencils out! I've got to give you the fire plan first. It's important you should have it written down, or you can see to write. He did that, and I wrote down the fire plan in my netbook. By then it was dark. He said, Orders! <laughs> what? Orders! Memorize a lot. They're going to be several. Where was it Bob Scott was from? Uh, Norfolk, I think. <laughs> <laughs> now, the dismounted... He was a pirate. He was a pirate in a former life. The dismounted carrier platoon was to move forward before dawn to be in position at the foot of Oaks Hill by 05.30 on the 4th of May. They were going to cover the main body of the battalion. Oh, dear, I can't remember what voice I gave this fella. Sergeant McRae was ordered to take out a night patrol with the twin aims of locating the Japanese positions and familiarising himself with the route. And I'm going to once more be Sergeant Ben McRae of the uh, carrier platoon, HQ Company. I took the last patrol out that night, and I had to find out where the Japs were down there, because during the day, this knocking, banging, was coming closer. I asked, who's in front to the special service platoon? Their sergeant said, anyone in front of us you meet with will be Japs. I went down the hill, and I think there'd been a skirmish with a special service the night before, because I discovered one of the special service <laughs> Japs down there dead, and the Japanese had taken his boots. So I knew that the Japs had been up there. I took my three blokes all the way down, right up to the Nala. It was a dry nullah, all big stones, not one of these sandy things that you could have crept across. You'd have made a devil of a noise. I got on another track that was running alongside it. At the end of this track, 20 or 30 yards away, there was a Japanese position, and 101, I bet they'd got automatic guns trained all the way around us. I got right up close, and you could hear voices and movement. We found out where they were, and that they were in there in some strength. My report went through the channel straight the way back to Bob Scott at Battalion Headquarters. Now, we, we Scott is... He's an experienced bloke. He'd had experience in the First World War. He's had all an interwar period. He's, he's experienced. And he'd learnt one thing, and that is before you send men into action, it's a good idea that they have something hot and cheery uh, inside them, if you see what I mean. And I'm going to be Lieutenant Sam Horner uh, of the HQ Company. The doctor had dug a hole for the regimental aid post. Robert Scott uh, had had strict orders from the brigade that there were to be no fires lit whatsoever. He disobeyed the order, told the doctor, Look, get a fire going in the bottom of that radio hole of yours, and I want every man to have some hot tea. I think it's very important for morale. There was little or no smoke. Any smoke that filtered up. There, there, were, there was somebody to swoosh it away. Brigadier Goshen then discovered that this was going on and practically placed Robert Scott under arrest, but not quite. 
Robert talked his way out of it and said, It's essential for the men to have poultices on their legs because they're getting bad. It'll get worse. We've got to look after the men's health. So basically, he's just lying. He's saying that this is the hot water, not for tea. It's to make hot poultices to draw out the pus. The pus, Gary. The pus that would be inside the uh, the sort of desert sores, jungle sores, I think they probably call them in the jungle. Now, not all the men got their cup of tea, did they? But those that did really appreciated Scott's actions. And you're going to be, once more, Private Burt May of HQ Company. I received some tea in my mess tin. Hot tea. You don't know what a cup of tea means to you after you've been three or four days marching without having one. A cup of tea does marvels. Now, they were facing the culmination oh, of all their years of training. Yeah, you've just seen what's coming in here, yeah. All their years of training. They were to go into action in just a few hours. Most men were still nervous despite their refreshing cuppa. Of course they were. And you're going to be, with a completely different voice, Private Dick Fiddeman of the 2nd Norfolks. Everybody's frightened. If he says he's not, then he's either a liar or a bloody madman. Because nobody wants to die. But nobody... I certainly didn't. But you're all pals together. There's a job to do, and you've got to get on with it the best way you can. Now, other men gained, uh, gained some added strength as they concentrated on their responsibility to the men that served under them. And once more, I'm going to be Sergeant Bert Fett of B Company. Oh, Zep is a platoon commander. I was prepared for a good scrap. If there was one coming along, and I didn't fear anything or anybody... I was keen to learn, and I was also keen to try and protect the men that were under my command. I wanted to get into battle with 30 men and come out with 30 men. That was my idea, and as far as the leadership was concerned, I'd never asked any troops under me to do what I couldn't or wouldn't do myself. I wasn't frightened. About a couple of minutes before the attack, you'd get a sick feeling in the stomach, but immediately you moved, that sick feeling goes away altogether, as far as I was concerned. I mean, everybody, I don't care who he is, is nervous to a certain extent until the actual battle starts. But when the battle starts, then you've got one thing in your mind. It's either you or the enemy. But somebody is going to get killed. At the back of your mind, it's the enemy that's going to get killed, not you or your men, as far as that goes. Now, the, 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 they're all getting ready to... to, to the Royal Norfolks are going to go into the attack at dawn. <coughs> Sorry, on the 4th of May, 1944. Now, uh, one thing we'll point out is that we won't... The next two episodes are full of the most, some of the most vicious fighting uh, imaginable, and there'll be no funny accents, because there's no humour in this sort of thing, is there? Uh, we might be able to uh, have a bit of fun with uh, moving into action, but there's no way we'll be doing funny accents for what happens. Uh, you've read the uh, the, the reports we've, we're going to use. Uh, it's horrific, isn't it, Gary? It is, and uh, some people would say that we haven't been using funny accents today. No, just bad. Just bad, yeah. Incompetent. Yeah. Awful. Stupid. Now, don't forget... <laughs> what was that man? What did that man call us that I really liked in our, Imag- our Apple review? Curmudgeonly. Curmudgeonly. <laughs> yes. Now, don't forget uh, the the wittiest uh, comment on Twitter about some of the accents today uh, will win a book. And uh, I, I suppose it's appropriate to, uh, to give them a, a Second World War book. So perhaps at close range, Pete? Uh, close range, uh, yes. Uh, the the winner will be will be uh, selected by a committee of two. 
Yeah, and uh, it'll just be whatever you say, as usual. I just do what I'm told. Oh, that's not true, you big fibber. Anyway, <laughs> cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?